open our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4, as we continue our verse-by-verse understanding of really what has just been a blessed epistle to go through. I know that the last several weeks, there has been a lot of very sobering exhortations that have come from the text, Uh, but these are for our good, beloved. These are for our own nurturing and maturity in the faith, and I hope and I pray that um, as we move forward in these other exhortations and warnings come from Hebrews, that we appreciate them all the same. But we come to a section now that is going to, as you see in a moment, magnify the rest, the promised rest of those who believe in the gospel. Let us um, read Hebrews 4, 1 to 10, as I hope to treat verses 2 and 3 today in the first part of a two-part message. Let's look at Hebrews 1 to 10. The word of the Lord says, Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. For unto us was the gospel preached, as well as unto them. But the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. For we which have believed do enter into rest. As he said, as I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he spake in a certain place of the seventh day on this wise, and God did rest the seventh day from all his works. And in this place again, if they shall enter into my rest, seeing therefore it remaineth that some must enter therein, and they to whom it was first preached entered not in because of unbelief. Again he limiteth a certain day, saying in David, Today, after so long a time, as it is said, Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. For if Jesus had given them rest, then would he not afterward have spoken of another day? There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. For he that is entered into his rest, he also hath ceased from his own works as God did from his. And may the Lord bless the reading and the hearing of his word. One of the fundamental promises of the gospel is the rest that Jesus promises in all of those who believe in him. One of the foundational and fundamental promises of the gospel, the Christian gospel, that we profess to believe that the church is called to continue to the end of this age, 
promises rest to all of the weary souls who will place their faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Many of you are familiar, I'm sure, of the great invitation of this rest, rest that's offered by Jesus Christ in Matthew 11:28, where Jesus in that great invitation says, Come unto me, all ye that labor, all that are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus, in that invitation, he was offering the original audience that heard it immediate rest. And that's how they would have understood it. We just read in Matthew chapter 20, how the blind men sitting on the side of the road, they were crying out for what? The, uh, the Lord, the, the Son of David, the promised Messiah, to have compassion on them, to heal them, to give them not future healing from physical ailments of their blindness, not, not future hoped for sight, but immediate rest from their physical ailments, right? And that's how Jesus' original audience would have understood him in Matthew eleven twenty eight with the great invitation. Come unto me. My gospel is an invitation to you who are heavy laden and who are weary, and I will give you rest. And we know that for ourselves and all of those who did come unto Jesus, who did heed the call of his gospel invitation, they found rest, didn't they? They found rest from the load of the burden that was associated with the guilt of sin. They found rest from the condemning weight of the pending judgment that they knew their conscience was echoing in their mind they would face someday. They found rest from the weary day in and day out drudgery of following all of the pharisaical rules that Jesus said later in Matthew, they place upon you, they bind you, which are too grievous to be born, but they don't lift one finger to help you. But I, the Son of Man, have come to give you rest from all of that. Come unto me, ye are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. As I said, this is a foundational promise of the gospel, and it is a beautiful reality of those who actually receive it. It's so beautiful. It's so important. It's so foundational. That's why the writer of Hebrews has been using such a sharp quill in his writing to exhort these first century Christians How could you ever think of letting anything take away that blessed rest which you have professed that you have received? Beloved, that's what lies behind his pastoral heart over the last 14, 15 verses we've covered so far, beginning in chapter 3, verse 7, with all of the threatenings and all the warnings. How in the world could you be so careless, so indifferent with this rest that you have received, this immediate rest from Christ? Well, today, as we continue here in chapter number 4, It's my desire for us to begin to unfold the fullest meaning of this rest that Jesus promised that these first century Jewish people who were converted to the faith professed that they believed. And by doing so, beloved, I believe that when we really unfold the fullest meaning of the rest 
that the Bible talks about and has promised us, we will first of all appreciate all the more why he's being so serious with his threatenings and his exhortations. We will understand just how soberly we're to take them. But by fully understanding the rest in its totality, and what is admittedly a rather complex chapter, chapter 4 is, there's a lot of singular and plural pronouns, there's a lot of conjunction words, there's different, it's a very tight-knit argument about the totality of the promised rest. But if we work, if we labor together to track down through it, Friends, not only will we understand why he was so concerned and why he had such serious threatenings, but we will be all the more encouraged by what it is you and I possessed. And verse 9 of our text today, what we're all still waiting for and we're promised to receive. And so it's going to help us appreciate the warnings, but also further appreciate what it is we possess as God's people. The promised rest. The promised rest. Now as I've alluded to as part of my introduction, this is, and I hope you would agree with me, somewhat of a complicated chapter. And one of the most difficult things it is coming as someone who has to teach the Word of God to a chapter like this is, Lord, this man who was inspired by Your Spirit to craft such a concise argument and put in such a tight framework, the meaning of what you're trying to communicate, oh God, will you help me to communicate that clearly? (laughs) Because we can get lost very easily. And so what I've done in your sermon notes is I've given you sort of a road map of what we're going to use. And this is going to show you where we're going to turn left, where we're going to turn right, where we're going to stop, okay? And if you look at that road map, it really kind of simplifies the argument. All right, verses verse two, beginning of verse two, into the first half of verse three. He's going to teach us something about the promised rest, as it was in the Old Testament, and as it's promised in the New Testament. That's what he's talking about. And then the second half of verse three. Look in your notes, going into verse four. In midstream of the argument, he introduces God's Sabbath rest from creation. And we'll find out why he does that. And then in verses 5 through 8, he lifts up with the example of David. And in the authorized version, uh, Joshua's names translated Jesus. Uh, young ones, that is the Hebrew name Joshua translated in the Greek Jesus. The modern translations have the text translated as Joshua. But verses 5 through 8, then what the author does is he says, hey, that promised rest that they were promised in the Old Testament to receive the land of Canaan and the wilderness generation didn't receive, it wasn't a means unto an end in and of itself. It was pointing to a much greater rest. And then in verse 10, or verse 9, I'm sorry, he makes the point that while we do receive some rest through the gospel, immediate rest, there's still some sort of rest still promised and waiting on us. So it's as if we already have a rest. He's teaching in this section of chapter 4, but we're still waiting for a further rest. 
And then in verse 10, he reiterates, he capitalizes on the fact that those who have believed, unlike the wilderness generation, they have ceased from their own works, which is part of their immediate rest. Does that roadmap kind of help? Because when you, when you first read that section of chapter 4, you feel like you can be in a whirlwind of what in the world is being talked about here. But friends, I give you the roadmap because as we work down through this verse by verse, we're going to prove all of these things that I've given you in your heading. And can I just say for a moment, it is these sort of scriptures, beloved, that really you have to buckle in your seatbelt and pay attention to because you can learn much about the overarching hermeneutical principles of how to understand redemptive history. Because think about it for a moment. Beginning with chapter 3, the writer to these New Testament Christians pulled back from uh, Psalms 95, the words of inspired David, and brought into their new covenant context an example from the old covenant of God's ancient people. And now here in chapter 4, he begins to bring Joshua into the picture. He begins to bring David back into the picture with Psalm 95. And what he's doing is he's putting in this section of chapter 4 the dichotomous nature, meaning things that are similar, but also things that are different between God's ancient people and God's uh, new covenant people. And that provides us an opportunity to get our bearings about ourselves, about what exactly is God's relation to the Old Testament Israel people and the New Covenant era in which we live in now. Why is this so important? I was listening to a sermon from a Baptist minister over in Richmond, Indiana that took place just a couple weeks ago. And he was attempting to explain how that modern-day Israel, modern-day Jews, have been and still have in possession land deed a title to the geographical landmass over in the Middle East. He sought to do that by going to Genesis 12 and Genesis 16. Never went to any New Testament passages. All he did was repeat that God's everlasting covenant promise to Abraham was that he was going to give Abraham a land. And then he spent the rest of his time in his sermon proving that truth by quoting statistical data, how that they were formed into a nation in 1948, how that they have the third largest military in the world, how that their population has grown from just a small group of people in 1948 to like nine point some odd million people. And I'm thinking all the time that he's looking at the land of Canaan that God did promise Abraham and that through Joshua they received in many ways as if that was their end uh, home. That that's what all of that pointed to. And we're going to see when we get later on down into the text here today that beloved, that was just a shadow. That was just a type. And besides, do you think God really cares that they have the third largest army? Is that, is that in some way in our minds a stamp of approval? That oh, you see... Uh, the land of Canaan, that still is their entitled land because I've given them the third, the third largest military in the world. Beloved, that's nonsense. That's nonsense to think that way. 
I don't mean to sound unpatriotic here because if it came to be and we had, such as the Ukrainians, had Russia on our back door over here, guys, I'd be the first one to pick up arms and I'd go to fight to defend the rights we have in this country and the freedom we have in these countries. But, but beloved, let me make it very clear. God, the sovereign king over all the nations, he does not say the Pledge of Allegiance to the American flag. God does not say the Pledge of Allegiance to an Israeli flag. What I, my point is very simple. We're going to see in the relationship between God's ancient people and his new covenant people, he has and he only cares about one people. And that is those who are under the crown of Christ. And so be careful, be guarded, because a majority of Christians today, every time something happens with Israel, something's going on over in Israel, we're supposed to dump money, send boots on the ground over there because somehow or another, God has unfulfilled covenant promises to them that they still have a land title deed to. You could pick that argument apart so easily. I don't mean to get sidetracked. I'm only using that to let you see that this is a precious opportunity for us in Hebrews to walk through and understand some of those implications of the relationships between the new covenant era and the old covenant. We're going to begin, as you see in your sermon notes now, with understanding verse number 2 and verse number 3, the first half of verse number 3, seeking to understand this promised rest as it's revealed not only in the Old Testament, but also in the New Testament. Do you remember last week in verse number 1 how the writer acknowledged that the promise of entering into God's rest which was first mentioned in chapter 3, the use of Psalm 95. Look back with me there. Uh, Chapter 3, verse 11. I swear in my wrath, this was the first mentioning of the rest, I swear in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. It was left on the table last week in verse number 1 of chapter 4. Fear, have a dreadful fear that you come short of that rest. But it's left for us. And since today is still today, we still are promised this rest. And so don't fall short of it, he said last week, through indifference and carelessness. And now we come in here to verse number 2. And he continues his argument by stating what in verse 2? Unto us was the gospel preached as well as to them. Who? He's referring to the analogy of the ancient people of Israel in the wilderness, isn't he? He's still using that analogy. Unto us was preached the gospel, and also unto them. But it did not profit them, he says in verse number 2, because it wasn't what? Mixed or joined with faith. This part of his argument now, it ought to make us to pause and ask a very obvious question. How could the wilderness generation, as recorded in the book of Numbers under the leadership of Moses, have possibly heard the gospel which you and I have been preached to. How in the world could that... I mean, that's what he says in verse number 2. They were preached preached the gospel, and we were preached the gospel, but the only reason, Brother Isaac, that it didn't benefit them was because they didn't have faith. But wait a minute. You know, you're talking 1,500 years before Jesus ever came, and, and the gospel that these first century Christians would have heard, that you and I have heard and come to believe... How in the world would they have heard that? What does he mean by the promise that they were offered 
in this gospel that they were preached? Well, the answer to this question, and uh, coming to a better understanding of it, it's going to help prepare us to understand how he references Genesis 2 later on in his argument. All right? The answer to that question of how he's understanding redemptive history, how he's understanding God preaching to them, communicating to them, what the rest entailed to them, is going to help us to better understand how he's lifting up Genesis 2-2 and the creation rest and tying it into his overall argument. In other words, he's going to give us a lesson in hermeneutics of how to understand the Bible. Watch how he does it. All history, we're going to learn in a moment, all actions within history is singularly concerned to teach one thing, the glory of the triune God. All of history. You see, what he's going to show us in understanding how they were preached the gospel and how we are preached the gospel is that there's a dual nature to redemptive history. And this is important in understanding verses 2 and 3 regarding ancient Israel. Because Abraham and his later physical descendants, Moses and the Israelites, who have been used in this analogy, they were specifically chosen by God among the nations to be used in two ways. In two ways. The first way that Abraham and his later descendants, the wilderness generation, were chosen was to be an immediate historical means to an end in order to move God's redemptive purposes forward in time, space, and history. And he chose them, Abraham and his physical descendants, for the purpose in time, space, and history to bring about his redemptive purposes, not because anything special in them. This is what Deuteronomy 7, 7-9 is teaching. God had to pick a people. And out of all of the nations, He picked Abraham and his descendants to, in an immediate historical sense, move forward His redemptive purposes, which would bring forth the seed promised in the garden to die upon the cross, to pay a propitiation, a ransom, for all of those eternally that God loved. So in one sense... These ancient people who were preached this gospel, they had an immediate historical usefulness to God. You see? To play out on His theater, this story that He's unfolding all throughout the Bible. But it was also these ancient people wandering around in the wilderness, and then later, through Joshua and David, they were also an object lesson that would point to the spiritual realities that transcend all of human history. And this is what this writer is wanting us to see. He's wanting to lift up before us what God did with them. Yes, there was real promises given to them, a real physical, temporary, historical rest. But that's not it. All of those things were pointing to something that transcended all of human history. And so, there is an immediate historical reality, as you see in your notes, to the gospel, the good news that was preached to them. The Yuan Gedlizo, that's the Greek word there, 
of the gospel that they were preached. Now, what does that mean? Does it necessitate that we understand that they understood that the Messiah's name was Jesus? No, you see, I've given it to you. What that word means simply is to bring good news, to announce glad tidings. It was used in the Old Testament, according to Strong's lexicon, to uh, pronounce any sort of good news. And I believe that that's how he's using it here. He's telling them, hey, the ancient wilderness generation, they were preached a gospel, and we were preached a gospel as well. But, the, but in the New Testament, you notice in your notes, it's used especially of the glad tidings of the of the kingdom of God. Not something that was still far off, that wasn't immediate, something that you still had to wait for. No, in the New Testament, when the words gospel is used, when this euan gedzlio is used, it's used in a way that's saying, it's here, the kingdom's here, Christ is here, the Messiah is here. Understanding how the wilderness generation was preached, this euan gedzlio, this good news, this promise. Beloved, understand that they were promised rest. They were. Those Israelites who Moses led by God's supernatural act of parting the Red Sea, they were promised rest from their enemies. They were promised rest from the want of any materialistic necessities which were supposed to be provided in abundance in the promised land of Canaan. Remember, they were promised this rest of want of materialistic needs this rest from the, 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 the harsh taskmasters of the Egyptians in a land that flowed with milk and honey. They were promised a land that had vineyards that they didn't plant. They were pl- promised rest by giving cities and buildings that they did not have to build. This was, you see, a gospel. It was a good news to them. They were promised an, an immediate physical rest. The children of Israel there in the wilderness. However, that is not all that was intended by God to be conveyed to them. The land of Canaan wasn't a in, in and of itself of the rest that God was pointing to. And this sort of statement that I've just made, it requires that we understand that God's immediate historical covenant dealings with Abraham, with Moses, and all through the prophets, were pointing to something outside of themselves, as I said earlier, namely Christ, His covenant, and him as a mediator for that covenant. That's what all of those things pointed to. But instead of me just telling you that, how about we look together in the Bible and see that that's in fact what the Bible teaches. That Canaan, the land that was pointed to by God of an immediate physical temporary rest to the wildering generation in the wilderness, the wandering generation, and to even those that inherited later, It was not the final rest. It was just an immediate physical rest to bring about the historical immediate purposes of God and redemptive history. Well, how do you know that, Pastor Doug? Because I let the New Testament help me understand the Old Testament. I don't hunker down in Genesis 12 and Genesis 16 and just keep repeating that God promised Abraham a land. Look with me in Hebrews 10.7 where later on our inspired writer here, he quotes Jesus verbatim where Jesus says, Behold, I have come, and the volume of this book, the volume of everything in this book, the law, the prophets, 
the, the holy days, the ceremonies, the land borders, it all is what? Written of me. That's why I said earlier in my introduction, beloved, that all of these things pointed and were designed by God. And this is crucial for you to understand of why He brings in God's Sabbath rest at creation. And I'm not going to spill the beans now, but you have to kind of stand back and understand this hermeneutical lens that God's doing two things in redemptive history. He's just got an immediate purpose for why you're here right now. Oh, but He has a spiritual purpose as well. And He's accomplishing that spiritual purpose. Every single time you get up in the morning and you walk and you get in your car and your neighbor looks out, God, yes, is accomplishing an historical immediate purpose for you to be here on this day, so forth and so on. But He's pointing your lost neighbor to the reality that there's a Creator God. And that someday, as His conscience in so much as it hasn't been hardened totally... He will have to give an account to that God. You see, that's how we understand the Bible. Abraham, Jesus is declaring here in 10.7 of Hebrews, in so much as everything was written in the book, was written of me. But this isn't the only place. This concept and this principle that everything pointed outside of themselves, all of their temporal covenantal dealings, to a greater covenant in Christ and the purpose for their ultimate fulfillment is all over the New Testament. I don't know how you know, some of these preachers who want to preach this really Israel worship, modern day Israel worship, miss all of this. Look at Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. This is where Paul describes... How that their holy days, all of their dietary laws, what's it say? You have it in your notes. Uh, Let's say it together. Shadow. It was a shadow of things to come. But the body, the authorized version says, it could be translated the substance, is Christ. All of these things were what? Instruments. And God's wisdom in His classroom to teach lessons. They were all shadows. All shadows. This Christological, redemptive purpose for all of these things that were promised to these wandering Jews in the wilderness. Beloved, they are connected with God's dealing with them and is expressed by Jesus again in Luke 24, 44, as being fulfilled in Him. You have it in your notes. You can reference Luke 24, 27, John 5, 39, verse 46, that they were all pointing to a future spiritual reality. So, We're seeking to understand this promised rest that they would have received, this gospel that they would have received. It was good news to them, Nolan, that God was saying, as you're over here slaving to make bricks, I'm preparing a land, a physical land, for you and and all of your people, and you're going to just have such a blessed time there. You won't have to work for uh, the cities you build, so forth and so on. So there was, you see, in verse number 2, a real good news promised to them in immediate sense. But God was teaching them something else. 
Yes, there was an immediate historical reality to the physical promise of rest that was offered to the wilderness generation. But more importantly, more importantly, the land that they were promised was pointing through the shadows and types that they were offered to a blessed future spiritual reality and a promise of rest, spiritual rest also. With that being said, there is, guys, a very real sense in which the gospel of the Messiah was proclaimed to these people as well. How was it done? It was done through symbols, through types, and shadows. That's what he means in verse number 2. They were promised an immediate historical rest, but there was something much more behind it. They were preached the gospel of the Messiah as well through all of the shadows. Young ones, what do I mean when I say shadows? What do I mean that, the, that Moses and the ancient Israelites could have been taught the gospel of the Messiah that you hear Sunday after Sunday here at church and no doubt in your homes from your parents? Well, this is what we mean. You see... When God gave them that special ceremony of the Passover to take a lamb and to sacrifice that lamb, He was showing them that sin had consequences. He was showing them His hatred towards sin. He was teaching them a lesson how they had to take something innocent in order to appease the wrath that their sins deserved. And so you see, that's why we call it a shadow because the lamb wasn't Jesus Himself, was it? But it was a type, wasn't it, Nolan? The land that God told them to get was a type pointing outside of itself, Nolan, in an object lesson to an anti-type, something that's not the type, but was promised to come someday through the prophet Isaiah that AJ is reading about today to take away what? The sins of the people. And so, young ones, this is what we mean when we say that in the immediate historical context, That these old ancient people of Israel, they were preached the gospel through these shadows. God had two purposes for the Passover. One, to give them an immediate physical sense that He's with them. Oh, but He was constantly spiritually pointing them outside of the Lamb to the Messiah that He promised in Genesis 3.15. Consider also how He would have taught them this gospel message to the crossing of the Red Sea. How that when they were at their wits end and they had all their enemies chasing them, there was no other way to escape. God alone provided a way. Glory be to God, right? Isn't that one of the five principles of the Reformation? To God be the glory. He was teaching them in the Red Sea experience that, beloved, He was teaching them that when you are at your edge of the cliff and you cannot help yourself, I'm the way who makes the way possible. I'm the way who takes the impossible and makes it possible. We could go on. How they were taught and preached the good news of salvation. What about the water from the rock? when they were thirsty and and they thought they were going to die. God, yes, provided them water. He did did want to, because why? He has to have a remnant to carry forward His historical redemptive purposes. He gave them water so they could drink and they wouldn't die of dehydration. 
But beloved, he was teaching behind that, that as your souls are thirsty, you need something much more than just this water. Moses had the eyes to see that. And only a few others in the encampment had those eyes to see that. But they understood the message clear. Also, when the brazen serpent, you recall, uh, in the wilderness generation, was raised up on the wooden pole, a wooden staff. Kids, you know that the cross that Jesus died on, we see it a lot of times depicted as, you know, a, a piece of wood this way and a piece of wood, you know, uh, uh, I was going to say parallel, you know, cross, cross it. But that's not the wooden pole that Jesus died on. Uh, the wooden pole that Jesus died on was simply a tree. And a tree has one trunk. And when the Roman soldiers put Jesus up on that wooden pole, they would have put his hands above him. Not out here like you see a lot in the pictures. And so now think about how Moses, God through Moses was teaching the ancient wilderness generation the gospel message to look upon the brazen snake upon the wooden pole. And if you do, you would be healed of the venomous bite. Now do you see how all these things were being used by God as object lessons to teach them their need for a God, their need for forgiveness, their, their only hope relies in Him and to, and to rest on Him? This is what the writer means in verse number 2 when he says, they will preach the gospel as we were preached the gospel. I think Galatians 3, 8-9 really captures this idea wonderfully. How these ancient people would have also been preached the gospel and understood some of them who believed, who mixed the object lesson with faith, they would have believed that it was God communicating to them the need of a Savior. It began in garden with Adam. Subsequently, Adam would have told that gospel to Seth. Seth would have communicated it to Enoch. Enoch would have communicated to the Methuselah. Methuselah would have communicated it to Noah all the way down here to Moses' time. They had it. And some of them believed. How do we know that? Look at Galatians 3, 8-9. That captures how many Old Testament saints not only accepted the immediate historical sense of what God was doing in their history, but also so passed the physical rest that was promised and by faith they entered into spiritual rest. Galatians 3, 8-9 And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. So then, they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. You see what Paul is saying there? The gospel preached to Abraham? Abraham could see through the land, the physical land, and understand the heavenly rest that God was pointing him to that he needed. Abraham could see through the the immediate historical context of what was God doing. And God was promising him what he truly needed. How that he needed to sojourn and, and run the race as if it were. Persevere unto the end. Keep moving forward so that he may possess that Beulah land that the land in Canaan typified. Notice how all the nations are blessed through Abraham. (laughs) Guys, the context of Galatians here is ripping to shreds the idea that any physical descendancy or lineages 
is what makes someone uh, accepted by God as they're connected with Abraham. How are the nations blessed through Abraham? Not through his physical descendants, who's the third milita- largest military in the world, and the, 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 whatever economy and whatever population. No, read Galatians. He's telling you how the nations are blessed through Abraham. By those who what? Are blessed with faithful Abraham, which be of faith. The nations are blessed by Abraham through his seed, who his seeds are those who have faith in Christ. How are they blessed? Not monetarily. They, they, they may be, but that's not the point here. The point here is they're blessed with the gospel. Because Scott, what else would motivate a man to sell himself in the Moravian missionary endeavors into slavery or the Moravian missionary endeavors going into the leper colonies to give themselves children leprosy other than belonging to Jesus, knowing his gospel. And as Brother Scott was saying in our fellowship time this morning about his own son and other people who may have disabilities in life, etc., etc., that they have value, they're created in the image of God, they have a soul. And because they have a soul, we want to take the gospel to them so they don't spend an eternity in hell. And so therefore, we go out, don't we, as salt and light, and we bless the nations. We bless the nations with the gospel. With the gospel. That's the meaning of Galatians. That's Galatians, you see, puts the bookend to the Abrahamic covenant and promises that Abraham was made in Genesis 12 and 16. You cannot, beloved, ever even preach a sermon on Genesis 12, Genesis 16 without coming to Galatians and putting the book into it of how it was fulfilled. Because you're going to leave everybody thinking, somehow or another, that the physical land that God was pointing to for temporary physical rest is the whole kit and caboodle. No, it's not. Abraham understood the gospel. I love that passage. You have it in your notes from John 8.56 that proves again that Abraham and the Old Testament saints, some of which who were the elect, they understood past the physical promises, the gospel that was preached unto them and the promised rest. Jesus said, your father Abraham, when they were ready to stone him, he said, he rejoiced to see my day. He rejoiced to see my day and he saw it. He saw it and he was glad. There's a real equivalency between the future promised rest of the Old Testament saints like Abraham, uh, Moses, and others that were looking forward past the physical promises God was making to them. There's a real equivalency between the future promised rest of the Old Testament saints and the immediate promise that we receive through, the, through Jesus' gospel, come unto me. There's an equivalency. Their content is the same. It is rest, spiritual rest. They received it, and we receive it. The former looks ahead. The Old Testament saints did the fulfillment of Christ while we look back and we see the accomplishment in Christ. But tragically, these lessons given by God to point them, verse number 2, that He gave them these good news, He gave them this gospel, these lessons that were given by God to point them to the real spiritual need. 
were not mixed with faith in most of them. And thus they saw the symbols, they saw the object lessons only as an end in and of themselves. Only as a temporal, external experiences, rituals, physical land, without and void of spiritual content and need. And so how in the world can the church today give modern day Jews the idea that somehow they're going to achieve their restful of it when they possess a physical land called Canaan? Because it was never intended to be the rest. It was pointed outside of itself to what Christ has done and what Christ still would do to them if only they will bow the knee to Christ the King and His Gospel. Shame on any pulpit who still gives modern day Israel the idea that the land of Canaan is somehow going to provide them a shred of rest. Because it doesn't. It doesn't. We could go over there and we could pack up all the Arabs over there. We could pack up every physical enemy and usher in every little Jew back over there to Israel. And you know what, beloved? Until God's sovereign spirit moves their hardened hearts just like their forefathers, they're going to end up just like the ancient generation in the wilderness. And therefore, the church of Christ today should not give them... I'm sorry I'm fired up about this, guys. I, just, I, 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 I heard this sermon, and it's all over the place. I try to avoid myself from being, you know, hearing this stuff, but I, but I heard it, and I'm just like, we're still, you're, we're still trying to say this stuff? It's so sloppy. It's sloppy, exegetical teaching from God's Word. It's not until God pours out His Spirit that the land of Canaan will mean anything to those people. And so with their blood, their sweat, and much of your tax dollars, they can fight for every square inch of Palestine. But not one Jew's heart's going to be converted by possessing the land until God's sovereign Holy Spirit cracks open wide their great need for Jesus, their crucified Messiah. Pray for Israel, friends. Don't praise Israel. You pray for Israel that they would repent and believe the gospel. Now verse 3, notice. The writer sets forth the truth that for those who can identify with the we in the verse, look at it together, he says, but we, for we, which have believed, we do, notice the present tense of the verb, we do enter into rest. We do enter into rest. This clearly teaches the truths that are connected to the verse that I opened up with in my introduction about how Jesus says, come unto me and I'll give you rest. There is an immediate spiritual rest. Later on in Matthew 11, verses 29 through 30, many of you know these verses, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am meek and I am lowly in heart and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It is Jesus Christ that relieves the sinner's burden by saving him from his sin and guilt and thereby granting to that person who believes upon him his immediate gospel rest. Many of you have heard the gospel. You heard Jesus' invitation that he would give you rest. And you have that rest right now. So right here in verse number 3 we're seeing there's an already rest sister that we possess. We're going to learn later on that there's a future rest that still remains 
And that's what we want to be encouraged by. Because while we have this present rest, beloved, this isn't all there is to rest that is promised us. There's much more. I am running out of time. I don't know how I ran out of time. Probably because I got sidetracked on how people confuse the issue of the physical, immediate, historical rest that's offered to the Jews. But look in your notes with me about the immediate rest that verse number 3 says that we do possess. And John 3, verses 1 through 21, describes, you, may, you know your, your Bibles, right? It describes, we don't have time to go there, but it described how Nicodemus, the religious leader, what did he find rest from, friends? He found rest from just mere external religiosity. He grew up, kids, in, the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in ancient Israel. He grew up with all the oracles of God. He had the holy days. He, had, he was in the land. Uh, you know, he had all the things, but he didn't, have the, he didn't have the real stuff, did he? He looked like he was a Christian on the outside, or a believer on the outside, one of God's people. But on the inside, uh, he was empty. He knew that this is all just plastic. It's all for show. There's no power in this. Because my soul still needs rest. I want something more. And he heard in Jesus the truth of the gospel. And he found rest from the performance, Nolan. He found rest that in Jesus, that he can have a real vital relationship with God, his Father in heaven. Perhaps some of you here today, I don't know, I think I know, I'm looking at everybody. Perhaps some of you today, you know, you grow up and you've grown up in that same context. You know, you, you, you had an outward religiosity, but, but you really um, weren't filled with God's love and his spirit for Jesus and what he did upon the cross. And something changed. By God's Spirit, you were able to see that Jesus truly died for you. And then Jesus, faith in Jesus, the, the, the religion of your mother and father, and the faith that they have in this one called Jesus, it became your own. You're the rest that we see in the life of Nicodemus. There's the rest of the Samaritan woman at the well. I'm just painting these pictures that, that we have entered into rest, beloved, in verse number 3. It's an already thing that's been accomplished through faith. The Samaritan woman at the well in John 4, 5-42 describes someone who found real rest from a desire to possess real acceptance and love. This woman, she didn't have real love. She didn't have real acceptance. And she was searching for it in, in a multitude of husbands. But when she came in contact with Jesus... Jesus gave her a rest, a spiritual rest that accepted her, that loved her, that genuinely cared for her. And what? Oh man, she went and told the whole town about it, didn't she? The whole town. She didn't need another husband. She found a true husband in Christ. What about the rest of the call of Matthew? The call of Matthew. The rest that he received from life dominating sins. What do you mean dominating sins? Well, beloved, because of his greedy heart, his quest for materialistic wealth, he sold himself as a Jew into one of the most despicable vocations you could ever be in. That was a publican, a tax collector in the employment of the Roman Empire. You see... 
He was told the law growing up as a boy. He knew the law in his head. And he, because of his heart and his, his desire to have ease of life and greed and wealth, it entangled him, it dominated him. His covetous heart was a sin of domination. But when Jesus called him, he was free. He was given rest from that life-dominating sin. This is the rest that believers do enter into. It's an immediate rest, verse number 3 is telling us. And how can we forget the rest from the condemnation of all of the world around us through the forgiveness of the adulterous woman who was brought to the feet of Jesus? And he says, I forgive you. Go and sin no more. Everyone else was ready to stone her. She made a mistake publicly. Everyone saw it. Their sins were hidden, but hers were known. And what do they do? Round up together. They want to condemn her. Jesus gave her immediate rest. I have to handle the second part of verse number 3 because if I don't do it here, it's going to be hard to do in our next message, okay? So, verse number 2 we understand the promise and how it was presented to the ancient people of Israel and how it's related to similar, but also how it's different to how it's presented to us. They looked forward, we look backwards, right? They, some, the elect, look past the physical uh, attachments and the temporary rest to the eternal rest. We get that in verse number two. Now look at verse number three. We which believed... We have entered into the rest. We, we have an immediate spiritual rest. We experience the promise Jesus gives us in His gospel. But notice what it says now. You can get tripped up by this. He says, as He says, and He quotes Psalms 95 verse 11. He quotes, not verbatim, but He quotes it. He says, as He says, as I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter to my rest. Don't even look at the second half of verse number 3 because go back to your outline. It's going to mess you up if you do that. Just stay with the first half of verse number 3. But why does he do this? Why does he say, For we which have believed do enter into rest, as he said, as I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest. Why does he do that? He's using contrast. The focus is, the focus is in this section of chapter 4, his rest. A full understanding of his rest. We've only looked at today the blessed immediate rest which we have through the gospel. Right? And then next Sunday we'll look at the other half of the rest. And together, as I said in my introduction, it gives us a fuller appreciation for why we want to persevere to the end. But why in verse number 3 does he lift up this fact that you presently, verb, present tense, you do enter into the rest through faith. And you have received the blessings, the immediate blessings of the gospel having spiritual rest. Oh, but but remember those people back there? I swore my wrath if they shall enter my rest. He's using a contrast. He's using a contrast to highlight the reality of the first half of the verse number three. It'd be kind of like this. Uh, The only thing I can relate it to in my own human experience, have you ever been where there's a storm coming from a certain direction? And if you were to turn your back and you were to look around, you would see these dark clouds, you know, rushing toward, you know, where you're standing. But if you were to turn back around and look in the direction you formerly were looking, it'd be bright as a sun. sun. Chir- birds chirping, you know. Well, the smart ones wouldn't be chirping. They'd be hiding. But, but you get the point, right? That's what he's doing in verse number three. 
He's trying to get us to see by the use of contrast of what he brought up in verse uh, 11 of chapter 3 about the warning of those who didn't enter his rest. He's saying, you have entered the rest, but remember those guys, they didn't enter in the rest because of unbelief. And he does it again, and we'll see it next week. He's using contrast to do it. It's difficult because he's trying to make a very tight-fit argument. And then he introduces, we'll see next week, God's Sabbath rest in the argument. And you're just like, whoa, you're taking all these left turns and all these right turns. But hopefully the outline I give you kind of simplifies it a little bit. That's what's going on there. The realized rest in verse number 3 is being contrasted with the judgment upon unbelief that he's already alluded to. Let's end our time today with a couple thoughts of application. First of all, for us who have believed and we have entered into this rest that verse number 3 talks about. Today, beloved, in this text, we have witnessed just what an awesome privilege it is to stand in the new covenant. That is, on this side of the cross. And by faith alone, we see what all redemptive history promised, including the object lesson of the Jews, all of their history. This will come up later in Hebrews. And now, guys, we possess it. We possess it. All of those things, what it was pointing to, we have in Christ. But there's much more to our rest as God's people than what we've talked about today, than what we've already obtained. And this is what we'll cover in our next message when we examine verses 5 through 10. And that's where it really gets good. I mean, if you think considering our rest in the immediate sense, especially in the context of uh, ancient Israel is good, wait till we look at verses 5 through 10 together. But what about for the unbeliever here today? You're hearing us Christians talk a lot about rest in Christ. We opened up with Matthew eleven twenty eight, with Jesus giving the gospel invitation to come unto Him to find rest. For the unbeliever who may hear this or be here today, no matter how hard you try, you will never be able to escape the unrest which plagues your conscience because the Scripture tells us why. A.J. read it. I didn't even... No, this was in Isaiah 57 until he read it this morning. Because here's why. Going back to what A.J. read in Isaiah 57, verse 20. The reason you cannot find rest that Christians have experienced is because the Bible says and identifies you as an unrepentant sinner, as someone who is wicked. Well, I don't consider myself wicked. That's because you're using the wrong mirror. The, the mirror is God's law. And God's law is like a reflection upon all of your sins. Unrepentant sin identifies you and places you in God's economy as one who is wicked. And AJ read it this morning, the wicked are like a troubled sea. It cannot rest whose waters cast up mire and cast up dirt. There is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. God will not allow someone to have the rest the Christian has, who still stiff arms him, who still rebels against him. We learn, as you see in your sermon notes in Romans 1.18, the person who cannot possess the rest that Christians have been here today talking and considering, because the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, and the unrighteousness of men 
who hold the truth in unrighteousness. What does that mean? He tells you. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has shown it unto them. How? By the invisible things of Himself from the creation of the world that are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, His creation, even His eternal power and God and Godhead. And so then, therefore, unbeliever, you're without excuse. Your unrest, you see, isn't because God's not communicating to you. The stars of heaven and night are communicating to you, calling you to come and to search out the truth of your Creator. And if you're sincere in that truth, or I'm sorry, that search, if you're sincere in that search, it will lead you to the gospel. It will lead you to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Because of that, it goes on to say, when they knew God, they glorified Him not, neither were they thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. The longer you stay in that troubled sea Isaiah was talking about, the longer you, you, you walk in persistent rebellion against God who's calling you through His Son to repent and to believe, the longer you do that, the harder, the more troubled the sea becomes. But Jesus still sends forth today the call to come unto Him. To come unto Him. Let's close with a word of prayer. O gracious Father, Lord, we quietly humble our hearts before Your throne. Lord, we have in the text today sought to understand how it was that You were long-suffering, how that You were patient, and how that You were faithful in giving, O God, the good news unto the ancient people of Israel, even to that generation who were destroyed in the wilderness. And Lord, as we reflect upon that, we worship You. You are a good and a holy God. Lord, we understood clearly that there are many similarities between what their promises pointed unto outside of their immediate physical sense and what we possess in a spiritual sense in Christ. Help us, O God, to just marvel. Help us to defend. And help us to be zealous, O Lord, to allow the witness of our Master Jesus and declaring that all of those things, they pointed to Him, the substance of that covenant of grace that was made in eternity past, that He left all the glories above to come and to fulfill and is now still fulfilling as we move forward to the great day of our consummation. God, You are all wise. And Your redemptive story that we learn about, we see that it is intertwined and connected together. Your covenants, Lord, in the Bible are not so disjointed that, O oh God, we cannot see clearly a thread all the way through Your redemptive history of pointing to our Savior, Jesus. We bless You and we thank You, God, that we stand in this era in which we do. 
that we stand in the new covenant. And with that, O God, we understand also there comes a greater degree of responsibility to whom much is given, much is expected. God, prevent us, I pray, from ever misinterpreting any of the physical, temporal covenants with Abraham. Oh, God has given a false hope to any people here upon earth in our age. Help us, O Lord, I pray, with this light that you've given us in the new covenant era to point all mankind to Christ. And next week, O Lord, I pray you would prepare our hearts. Prepare our hearts to just rest again in the future promised hope because, O God, as we approach your supper, we confess to you that many of us here who have received spiritual rest in Christ, Lord, we are weary. We still have... Lord, our flesh. Lord, there is at times, O God, enemies that come and attack the preciousness of what we hold dear. And this is exactly what we will explore next week, that there is a Beulah land outside of even this present enjoyment we have as a new covenant community. Oh, that we are sojourning on toward. Thank you for the rest you give us in Christ now. Embolden, strengthen our eyes of faith to see that eternal rest that we will learn of next week. We bless you, Father, and we thank you. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.